Hello, world. What is up? Welcome back to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte. And on today's episode, we're talking about emotions and the brain. Now, one of the things we've briefly touched on in the past here on the show is the physiological responses one may experience with emotion. You know, like uh, when you fall in love and, and your pupils dilate and your heart races a little and, and your palms might get sweaty or uh, or when you're afraid of something and, and your pupils dilate and your heart races a little and your palms get sweaty uh, or, or, or embarrassed. How about when you're embarrassed? We've all been embarrassed, right? You say something dumb in front of some really smart people, kind of like I'm doing right now. And, and what happens? Your, your pupils dilate and your heart races a little uh, and you're and your palms get sweaty. To be fair, there's a bunch of other things that we do. It's just th- those, those are the ones that I remember. And this is why I like to leave the science to the grownups in the room here on the show. But my point, listeners, uh, which I do have one, is that in discussing what physically happens when we experience emotion, there is a space we, we've only broached ever so slightly uh, in, in this particular area of conversation, that is. And that, of course, is right here. Um, Right. It's a podcast. For those listening, I just pointed at my head because I'm referring to the the little gross ball of fats, proteins, carbohydrates and salts that we call the brain. Uh, Much like the deepest depths of our ocean and the outer reaches of space remain a mystery. So, too, does much of exactly what is going on and more importantly, how things operate up there in our brain. But, uh, you know, for all the stuff that we simply don't know yet, here's the cool thing. There's a ton of stuff that we do know. Uh, In fact, a fun way to think of it is technically We know more about the brain now than we ever have throughout the entirety of human existence. Uh, Thanks to folks like today's guest, intelligent, dedicated, hardworking people of science who have studied and analyzed the brain, observing it, decoding it for years. Thanks to them, our brains know more about brains than the brains of years past. Uh, I made a bet with Alan that we'd say the word brains no less than a hundred times in this episode, so I'm front-loading the intro to make sure we cross that line. Uh, I'm beyond thrilled to have today's guest here with us because we get to ask some crazy questions like exactly how does our brain behave when we're scared or entertained or when we dream? Uh, Do we have emotions flood the entire system or is there a section of our brain dedicated to handling all that? Uh, If we figure out how the brain operates, can we reverse engineer that to interpret people's thoughts and bring what's inside out? Uh, What are the implications from a healthcare standpoint? And what about our other favorite topic on the show, AI? How can it be used to help fill in the gaps as we attempt to better understand and decode our thoughts? Uh, What about the other way around? Think of this. If we better understand how our brain works, can we use that to make a better AI? Uh, I got a million questions. Uh, For the record, I've said brain 13 times. Well, 14. Uh, Now, before we begin, speaking of big brains, 15, I can't do this show without one of the biggest brains I know. I'm, of course, talking about my friend and co-host, the great Dr. Alan Cowan is here. Alan, welcome back once again. How you doing, sir? You doing all right? I'm doing okay. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> I'm excited. You excited for today's guest? This is this is so cool. I'm so excited. 
Oh, all right, let's not waste any more time. Let's 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 get him right into the show. Today's guest is a professor in the Graduate School of Informatics at the University of Kyoto in Japan, as well as the head of the Department of Neuroinformatics at the ATR Computational Neuroscience Laboratories, also in Kyoto, Japan. Uh, you may recall reading about him and the team he led back in 2012 when they garnered international attention after announcing they used functional neuroimaging to scan the brains of people as they slept, enabling them to decode the visual content of their dreams. Uh, truly fascinating body of work. I'm so excited. Please welcome to the show. Uh, Yuki Yasu Kamitani is here. Yuki, thank you so much for making time and being here with us today. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm feeling good. Uh, now it's morning in Japan. And yeah, uh, yeah. So thank you for uh, inviting me here. It's my uh, great pleasure. It, it is the pleasure is all ours. Uh, yeah. We are so excited to have you, uh, and, and very. I cannot express my appreciation enough. Uh, joining us from uh, the other side of the the world here over in Japan, mm -hmm. it's so great to have you here. Thank you. Um, all right, I asked a bunch of questions in my introduction. There, I want to get to all of them. We have plenty of time. We will, but before mm -hmm. we do, Yuki, I always love. Uh, to give our listeners a little bit of background and context mm. uh, with so much amazing work that you've done. Was this always the area of study you were most interested in? Did you did you have a, a fascination with neuroscience uh, your whole life? Or was there something that inspired you and, and, and it said to you, this is the area I must study. This is what I must explore. Tell us how you ended up where you are. Uh, okay, yeah, so yeah, I've been interested in the relation between our perception and the mind. Okay? And uh, early in my career, I, I was studying visual illusions. So visual illusions are interesting because it shows the discrepancy between what's physically there and what you actually experience. So maybe uh, the gap may be filled by looking at the brain activity. So yeah, I was interested in some, how subjective experience is encoded in brain activity. So, and uh, so, you know, people study brain as it is and uh, how, you know, brain or neurons uh, respond to different kinds of stimuli or some tasks, but uh, yeah, it's hard to interpret, right? So, and each individual have different brain and neurons and they're connected differently. So, and, uh, you know, those organizations are you know, kind of, you know, created by, by chance, you know, based mm. on their experience in their lifetime. So, and so rather than uh, uh, try to characterize individual brain areas or individual neurons, I was more interested in translating brain activity to something like images or voice or some robot movements. So that way, maybe we, we, can, we can be sure, you know, what, uh, what's going on in the brain to what degree. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's been my interest. And uh, dreaming is interesting phenomenon. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a sleep researcher or, you know, dream researcher. I, I just... I was just interested in dreaming because it's very extreme, you know, example of, you know, the discrepancy between what's there and uh, what the experience, right? So there's no physical, you know, input 
during sleep, but you still experience something very vivid. So that's why I was interested. So, Amazing. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. That's, there's, there's a lot in there that we're going to get a little bit mm. deeper into that I'm so curious mm. about. Uh, now, Alan, uh, you worked with Yuki uh, many moons ago. Uh, is that right? How'd you two cross paths? So I interned over in Yuki's lab when I was in college, and I got to help out in whatever ways I could with the dream decoding study at the time, which was very, very exciting. Um, and then more recently, we got to work together on an emotion decoding study, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, because I had kind of become a behavioral scientist, put together these stimulus sets, Yuki found some of my work and um, the intersection of those two things had never been done. Um, the kinds of studies that that Yuki does that are extremely meticulous, that measure uh, brain activity at a very fine grain scale that um, enable you to collect a lot of data from individual subjects and do that sort of decoding. Very few people can do that. Uh, and so I was really excited to work with Yuki when he told me he was using uh, our emotional stimuli to evoke uh, different patterns of brain activity in, in participants and try to decode that. Um, so that was, that was more recent. There was a, there was a six year gap in between those and more. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that initial study that you helped him when you were, when you were first starting out, was that, was that, I don't, Alan, I, as much as close as we are, I don't know how old you are when you went to school. <laughs> was that after, um, cause I remember reading about the 20, 2012 study when like the first images were released. Was, was that after that had happened that you had worked with him like, or, or was that? It was before that actually. Before I think that. it was 2010, I, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, yeah, yeah. I just was looking at the record, and uh, I think you started twenty eleven or so. Twenty eleven, as okay. a graduate student. At that time, we yeah, we are working hard to you know write up the paper, maybe yeah. So wow, so because as I mentioned, I remember when those images first came out, and that uh, that was a, there was a whole lot of attention around. That was a big deal. So Alan, you were you were right at the ground level. You were there for those. Were you among some of the first people to see the images before they were published and to see? Because one of the questions I wanted to ask Yuki was that feeling the first time you successfully generated those images and were able to see it. And we'll get to him in a second. But Alan, where were you? So I got to see it when um, they had collected the data from people who are sleeping um, and they woke them up every 10 minutes or so, basically, <laughs> in, in, in so-called hypnagogic sleep for like hours and hours and hours, like eight hours. That sounds uh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they had the participants report what they had been dreaming about. And, and so at the time, what we tried to do was decode what people were reported dreaming about. Um, so specific topics of the dream. So not not necessarily what they were seeing um, visually. Uh, and so when I got to the lab, they had already been pretty successful in this. I tried out a few different approaches. They were interesting. We didn't end up publishing it, but it was still really, mm -hmm. really fun and really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Yuki, yeah, just to, to sort of close this circle here, I, when I saw those images, I think of, um, it, I feel the similar way whenever I see an image from like a, a panorama from the Mars rover, I can't believe that it's real and that we're doing this and we've done this. So I can only imagine what was that like for you the first time you saw success? We've done it. I, I can see an image that was generated based on information 
from a, another human being's brain. What, what, what was that like? <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, the, uh, maybe you're talking about reconstruction of some visual image, yes. but uh, that's kind of separate from dream study. So dream okay. studies output is basically some semantic category, you know, at that time, you know, 2000, you know, 13 science paper. So although recently we are, we are trying to make an image from sleeping brain. And uh, so, yeah, and uh, at the same time, we, we had a you know, separate project of visual image reconstruction, and uh, that was first published in 2008. And uh, it's like, a, you know, very crude, you know, black and white signboard-like reconstruction. So, yeah, and uh, so, yeah. It's really exciting to see, you know, the first, you know, successful, you know, reconstruction or de decoding. And, uh, but, uh, you know, science is, you know, it's just, uh, you know, uh, science is hard, you know. So if you, <laughs> if you get something, you know, very exciting, it turns out to be some noise or artifact or something. So we are always very careful. Well, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you oh. off. Um, no. did, we, did, did you? I was going to. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, so, I, wanted, uh, I just wanted to ask about the fuzziness of the images. Uh, in yeah, some yeah. So, images. yeah, actually, yeah. So we have to you know, make sure whether that's real. Right. So it's right. not just uh, some artifact. And, uh, and so we, we use machine learning. So, you know, in machine learning, we, we have to be very careful that you know that the test you know data test results are not in uh, are not included in any process of machine learning right mm -hmm. otherwise you know computer just memorizing you know some yeah. you know something to be output so yeah so yeah okay, yeah there's excitement but uh, you know we, we have to be very careful so you know it's more something you know cumulative you know, well, to I, get convinced you know, yes because yeah. i'm sure too you've got a this is true of, of science in general before you mm -hmm. bring your results public you you want to double triple quadruple mm -hmm. check that you've you've achieved what you believe you've achieved mm -hmm. you don't want to bring it to the public and then have them go well no i don't believe you this isn't especially in with what you're tackling here the idea of being able to at the risk of oversimplifying it, look into a person's mind, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to do something. So I'm sure you had to be very careful and very thorough and, and double and, and check everything. Were you nervous uh, when the time came to tell the world that this mm -hmm. is the progress you made? Was that a scary moment to say, all right, well, we've been doing this in our lab. Now we have to let everyone know. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It's a uh, scare. Maybe. Yeah, how it's accepted. Yeah, it's kind of scary. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, yeah. But also exciting, I'm sure, too. Very uh, exciting. Yeah. 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 And since, you know, it's uh, our results are, you know, easy to understand, you know, to the public at yeah. some level, right? So, so there are a lot of misunderstanding, you know. Yeah, some media you know, describes, you know, our results, something beyond what we have actually achieved or yeah. something. 
So let's yeah. let's tackle one of those misunderstandings that I think I might have had and that I was very curious about. And I thought, who better to ask yeah. um, when I first uh, whenever I see the images and uh, yeah. some other ones that I'm thinking of that may not be uh, from that specific study. But I've seen also uh, where subjects are shown uh, letters of the alphabet. Mm-hmm. And then you can see the kind of fuzzy, like it's plain as day, it's an A, it's a B, it's, you can tell the characters, but they're still a little fuzzy. They're a little, they're, they're not perfect. And one of the things, uh, if you can't tell, I'm not a scientist. One of the things I was very curious about is, is the fuzziness a product of the, what we're capable of capturing? Will that in time become clearer and more crystal clear? Or is the fuzziness because that's how our, our brains are, are processing it? Like when I think of my memory of a dream, it's not a, it's not photographic. It's a little fuzzy. It's a little surreal. So I was just wondering the, the, the origin of the fidelity of the image. Is that, is that the limitation of the science yeah. or is what we see? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's certainly the case that our technology is premature and which is causing okay. the fuzziness and uh, improving the you know, brain measurement technique and uh, algorithm you know, may help yeah. make it better. But uh, even if it's, you know, uh, at, at, you know, those technologies are advanced, uh, maybe we, we, we will still get some fuzzy things yeah. that maybe uh something uh you know encoded in the brain so you know our our brain has some internal model of the world so that's what we experience but that's not the exact copy of the world mm-hmm. so it's rendered i know by some experience memory or some emotion or whatever so yeah, yeah so that's actually what i'm interested in so you know, brain is not just uh, you know having the copy of the world. So how it's rendered, and uh, actually in our recent study, so we asked the subject to pay attention to an image, and the image consists of two overlapping images, and uh, they you know and depending on which image the subject is paying attention to, the reconstructed you know image drastically changes. So that's a kind of you know, demonstration of uh, what's, you know, a decoding of our internal world, you know, rather than physical you know, stimuli. Uh, you mentioned in there, God, it's so exciting. Uh, you mentioned uh, emotions uh, and, and how oh, yeah, yeah. Can color the rendering. Mm-hmm. And um, and I wanted this is a podcast about emotions. Mm-hmm. So I've got a billion dream questions. We'll come back to those, but let's go down this alley for a little bit. Um, and and how Alan, and, and feel free to jump in. Some of the ways in which emotions can color that rendering, and and what we do know about uh, the influence emotions have on 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 how we render things and, and see things in our minds. So I mean, emotions affect. I think what what Yuki was referencing as a kind of a spatial attention. Um, emotions affect your attention. Um, okay. Emotions affect uh, obviously your expressions and the behaviors that you imagine taking in your decisions, and they color your perceptions in kind of a more basic way. So emotions are these kind of global states, um, and so if you're if you're not seeing clues to what emotions somebody's experiencing in many different regions of the brain, 
you're doing something wrong, right? Because emotions affect so many different processes, vision, audition, decision-making, um, physiological states, and so forth. Um, so, you know, it, it, in many cases, emotion is, is, uh, is an artifact. It's something you actually want to kind of regress out, get rid of um, from, a, for example, a perception study, right? Um, I mean, to some extent. Uh, in the same way that attention differences across subjects are, but you know, uh, it's, it's, it's better if you can model it. <laughs> what is, you mentioned, um, you look for signs of a certain emotion. What is physically happening in our brain when we experience emotion is, is there, uh, it sounds like there's observable, like a physical performance that we measure and that we can see within the brain. Uh, what, what does that look like? What, what is that? So that's the question that we were trying to ask. Yeah. Um, and the the way that people had approached this problem before is um, they had basically picked a few different stimuli, one or two or three um, per emotion. And they posited, well, there's six emotions. Let's see if we can distinguish these six emotions by essentially uh, modeling which image somebody was looking at or which video, right. but there's so Let's many scare different them things. and see what happens. Let's make them laugh and see what happens. Is that kind of thing? Like show them something scary and then observe. Is that what we were trying to do? Essentially that's the, yeah. that's the intuition. But the problem is that the things that they showed participants differ in a litany of ways besides the fact that they evoke different emotions. And so you look across many different studies that used those early <laughs> techniques and you see very inconsistent results. <laughs> and some of those inconsistencies have been interpreted by people who uh, occupy kind of the psychological constructivist camp that emotions are, are learned uh, representations and not something that you're born with. Um, some of those studies have been interpreted as fact that as, as, as showing that emotions don't actually involve any consistency in brain activity, that the brain is just kind of, yeah, each emotion corresponds to potentially many different patterns that, that wouldn't be consistent across subjects or even necessarily across different instances of somebody experiencing an emotion. That was the, the claim. So, what we decided to do, what Yuki decided to do independently, actually, was take that approach and instead of just showing one or two stimuli per emotion, show as many stimuli as possible so that you can actually try to separate out what kinds of patterns of brain activity are evoked by the emotions somebody's experiencing in response to a stimuli, stimulus versus the perception of specific visual properties in the stimulus and semantic properties who like is there are there people in it are there animals and so we actually with enough data we can start to model that and so that's what we did that's what yuki's lab is really good at um and we have all this data on all these videos you know what what's in the video um what we can model the visual components of the video and um, we found that once you do that once you take care of all of the noise and the consistencies you find much more consistent representations of emotion that are not restricted to a few a few different emotions that they, they actually correspond to a really wide range of different emotions wow. over a dozen um, at least uh, and, and we tested twenty seven in total and they seem to all be decodable um, and so cool. oh my god and the patterns of activity that correspond to the different emotions are consistent across different people, remarkably consistent. 
Um, and they're more consistent than you could explain if you're trying to use kind of a low dimensional theory of emotion. Um, for example, the psychological constructivist perspective is that things like valence, how positive or negative something is in arousal, how calm or excited it, uh, it makes you, um, are actually the core components of emotion and other mm. things are sort of made up by the brain, uh, constructed by the brain in a way that's learned um, and not innate at all. Okay. But in fact, what we found was that there's less consistency across participants and how people represent or how, how, how different kinds of levels of valence, for example, are represented in different brain regions um, or the same brain regions. There's less consistency in that than there is for specific emotions, uh, which is pretty remarkable. And it sort of makes sense is like disgusting things evoke more similar patterns to other disgusting things yeah. than they do to things that are scary. You know, it makes sense intuitively, but this right. is actually very contrary to the constructivist perspective. Uh Man, that is fascinating. <laughs> and it's so funny, too, because you, it's like you said, intuitively, there are certain things that we've sort of accepted as universal uh, reactions that disgust being what there are things that we are, we are universally reviled that we all agree is disgusting. And so you can kind of tack onto that and use that as, as almost like your control. I feel like my next question, it might be too soon for us to answer this, but let's take a swing here. You know, is there a difference, uh, having observed and, and gone and done all this work, do we know, is there a difference between how our brains handle uh, uh, emotions in our waking state versus when we're asleep? Uh, or is it all the same? What, you know, what, what do we know about emotions awake versus asleep? <laughs> yeah, that's a difficult question. And uh, yeah. actually, yeah, uh, emotion in sleep or dreaming uh, have been studied by, you know, a uh, report after awakening, you know. So, and uh, there's a study sh showing that majority of dream reports are emotionally negative. So, Interesting. maybe 60% maybe or 70% or so, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. So, that makes sense to me, you know. So, yeah. I, I don't seem really joyful, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, dreams. So, True. yeah. And uh, so this, this this theory, you know, try to link that, you know, to some healing process of the mind or something like that. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's very limited, you know, so, you know, reports of, you know, dream experience, dream, uh, emotional experiences in dreaming is very limited and it's hard to, collect data so yeah it's our future task but the emotion is a very major part of dreaming so yeah, yeah we are very interested in that but uh, so far we've been working on some you know early stage dreaming so which is which occurs just after sleep onset okay. so those you know early you know sleep do not generally have you know remarkable you know emotional you know changes so so you know REM, REM sleep is famous for dreaming but uh, 
to measure REM sleep, we have to wait at least one hour or more you know, to mm. get the cross REM dream. So, yeah, that makes it difficult to study REM. But uh, in REM dreams, it's said that there are more uh, rich emotional content. So, yeah, we are really yeah, interested in that, but uh, it's been difficult to study my um my question regarding REM sleep because I've read that that's where you you can mm-hmm. have a, a deeper emotional connection. It sounds like I'm I'm way too early to the party. I was going to ask uh why why and it sounds like you're trying to figure that out. Why why are we more prone to deeper emotional uh dreams in in the REM state? Uh, why is it because we're more vulnerable? Is it because we're deeper uh in, into whatever that state is? You know it's. It's interesting um, because mm-hmm. I, I know that you were, um, I had read that, that basically it, that REM takes a little bit longer to get to. So it's more challenging. Mm-hmm. So we're focusing on those earlier stages, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. But do you have any theories of, uh, of what's waiting for us over there? Why REM is where uh, the, the uh, higher, that's heightened emotionally and stuff like that. What, what are some ideas as to why well, that? I Actually, in the first, you know, REM, the relation between REM, non-REM uh, versus, you know, dreaming or not, it's uh, rather independent and I'm more independent than previously thought. So actually, <clears throat> in early theories of, you know, dreaming and brain, so dreaming occurs exclusively in REM periods, but uh, that's not true. So it's just a matter of, you know, degree or frequency. So, you know, uh, the the fact is that uh, when you awaken a person during REM sleep, you are more likely to get dream reports Mm -hmm. as compared to non-REM period. So even even in non-REM period, uh, we get a lot of, you know, dream reports. So, yeah, the previous theories you know, strongly, you know, asserting that uh, REM is, uh, dreaming is exclusively, you know, appears in REM periods is wrong. But still, REM is like, uh, you know, if you look at the brain activity during REM period, it it looks like awake, awake state. Right. It's very active. So yeah, I think it's natural to have variety of you know, experience occurs, including emotion during REM. Yeah. Here, here's a question for you. As we talk about uh, emotions during sleep and, and, and how those can feel and how those are similar and all these different things, h- how do emotions affect your dream state going into it. In other words, how important was it that when you had your when you were doing your your studies to make sure that the people you were observing weren't nervous or scared or frightened going into the sleep state? Does that factor in at all? How, our emotional state prior to dreaming is that important, or is it once we're unconscious, it's a clean slate, we start from scratch? Yeah, actually, I haven't carefully looked at those comparisons, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. So, and actually, in our brain scan experiment, it's a uh, you know sleeping in the scanner is kind of challenge. <laughs> so, I would imagine it's scary. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, dream contents. Actually, we study in the first on ourselves, you know, and uh, my students uh, going to scanner and sleep and. Uh, 
So yeah, the dream contents are likely about how to set up experiments, you know, how, yeah. how to analyze, you know, they, they, they dream about, you know, uh, analyzing his own data <laughs> so, <laughs> or, uh, yeah. Uh, one dream report says that, oh, I, I, I was, uh, I was just talking to, uh, I know. But Professor Kamitani, uh, I want to quit this project. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's, uh, and if you, know, you have experience of you know, being a subject in brain scans, once you get used to it, right? Yeah, it becomes rather difficult to keep awake. Right? Mm. So, yeah, you know, even if you are asked to perform some task you know you tend to fall asleep right yeah so, yeah so yeah that it really changed you know i think the mental set toward sleeping in a scanner may change over time yeah. mm -hmm. that makes sense uh i'm going to ask permission here to ask a potentially very silly question uh <laughs> alan since uh, this is technically <laughs> is yeah, that all right can i, I can of i course. yes okay. as opposed all right. to all the other questions you asked <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you that was that was good that was good okay so here we go potentially very silly question but my whole life i've been told since i was a child that uh dietary habits and food and that we can consume or ingest before we go to bed could potentially, if you eat a heavy meal, you're going to have bad dreams. If you don't uh -huh. eat that, it's going to give you nightmares. Now, I, again, I apologize if this is in no way related to anything you've studied, but I figured you guys have studied dreams. You've studied people dreaming. So naturally you've looked at every possible way that your data could be skewed. So I was wondering, do you have any thoughts? Is there any truth at all to the old wives tale that, that if you eat a large meal or what you consume prior to sleeping can influence your brain activity and your dreams. Is there any truth yeah. to that? Um, yeah, I don't know any particular you know piece of work, but uh, yeah, I think it's probably possible. And, I like uh, that. Yeah, so maybe you are you know uh, stomach, you know the state of stomach or you know some it's actually it's kind of you know interoception, right? You know. <clears throat> so our sense of some internal state and uh, which is tightly linked to our uh, you know emotional experience mm -hmm. in daily life so and uh, when you are full during sleep maybe that affects your emotion and it's reflected you know, in the in the dream content so yeah that's pretty possible and uh, it's a solid actually, maybe i'll take it <laughs> yeah actually you know we really you know at, at the early stage of dreams study we really wanted to control dream contents that mm -hmm. makes very easy to yeah you know, that makes make sense. sure you know whether our decoding is, is correct yeah. so but uh, you know, for instance we had a subject to play video game Tetris for three hours. You know. and, uh, Sign me actually, up. How do I get involved? I would love to do that. <laughs> Please. Yeah, actually, there's a pre previous study doing that, and uh, you know that playing video game can uh -huh. cause you know you know video you know 
like you know dreams you know more frequently and uh, we kind of replicated but the the the, the frequency is very low right only like 15 percent of time you know the subject see you know dreaming about playing games so that's not enough and uh, so yeah we tried various things but uh, we gave up you know yeah. <laughs> control dream content so and then we let the su subject to dream anything and, yeah uh, yeah and uh but the, the cost of that, we you know, have to make a decoder, which covers a lot of things in yeah. daily life. So that is a challenging part of that. Where, where, where does one begin that process? Because that is very challenging. You have to make, you have to cast such a wide net. You have to look for everything now. Mm -hmm. So, so where where do you begin? Do you start with a list of uh, the the most common dreams? Uh, do you? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, actually, we had some uh, dream report, you know, uh, data set of dream reports. So, we picked uh, some most frequently dreamed uh, objects. Yeah, but it turned out that it's. It's not specific to dreams. Yeah. Right? So yeah, and uh, it's it, it was kind of you know just a general list of daily objects like automobile and a chair <gasps> or a house or a street and uh, yeah it's and uh, we chose about twenty very general object categories and then mm -hmm. collected images and showed those images while the subjects are awake. And that's how we created the decoder, so yeah. which was used to analyze. Uh, and then you would brain. you would then take that from when they were awake. You take that data and go, okay, when their brain does a similar thing while they're sleeping, right, that right, yeah. they're they're imagining that thing again. Right, right, right. Oh, so very cool. Um, here's a question. Let's go. Just a fun one. Do either of you keep a dream journal? Do either of you keep logs of your dreams? Uh, Yuki, do you write down your dreams or no? Is it you keep your work separate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, but that makes the memory of dreaming very vivid. So, and, uh, sometimes I, I was confused, uh, you know, some, you know, <laughs> uh, reality and <laughs> dreaming and uh, which, yeah. So yeah, I don't generally recommend. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I, uh, cause one of the things that I, when we talk about dreaming and I think of all the things I'm curious about, there's, um, you know, lucid dreaming is, uh, that, that yeah. I'm not telling you what lucid dreaming, but for our audiences, my, my general understanding of what I've read is mm -hmm. it, it's basically a hyper awareness of being in a dream state mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and pop culture has extrapolated that concept to so showing people that uh, are like Neo in the matrix. Once they mm -hmm. become aware they're in a dream, they can manifest anything in their mm -hmm. dream and they have all this fun stuff. And, and so that's a very appealing, cool idea. And a lot of people will say, well, start a dream journal. The more mm -hmm. you journal, the more uh, in tune you'll be with that part of your, uh, with that activity right. in your brain. And so I was just curious as someone, who is trying to understand and decode dreams if you had a journal yourself and it sounds like you gave it a go but you did not recommend yeah, it. yeah actually yeah uh lucid dreaming is a very interesting topic and uh, it's uh I, I when i first heard of that it's kind of dubious you know thing and, yeah. but uh, it's it's real and uh, there's uh recent uh good you know scientific studies and that uh, try 
you know, some some are trying to induce lucid dreaming by stimulating, mm-hmm. you know, prefrontal cortex. So what's what's different <clears throat> uh, in lucid dreaming, uh, you know, from the ordinary dreaming is that the prefrontal cortex, you know, the you know, brain area for some more high-level executive functions is active during sleep. So mm-hmm. it, which is usually inactive during sleep. So it's kind of, so, but uh, uh, we could you know uh, use lucid dreaming for our uh, study, but uh, lucid dreaming is, itself is very special state. So you know, since we we, we want to you know study more uh, general dreaming experience, so so far we haven't yeah. looked at the, you know lucid dreaming, but it's it's yeah. potentially. It's, yeah, it's on the board. It's it's an option. Alan, you ever have a lucid dream? You ever do that? Huh? I was I was into it in high school. I used to wake yeah. myself Almost up you are, at like oh, two in the morning, three in the morning. There was there's a technique you can actually wake yourself up and then kind of follow yourself back asleep, and mm-hmm. and you find yourself in a dream and you sort of know you're in a dream. And at that point, <laughs> you can actually make things happen just by thinking about them, which is really cool. So I was really into that for a little while in high school. And I had some lucid dreams. I mean, it's pretty hard to to force it, but I probably mm-hmm. had, I had dozens. <laughs> dozens? <laughs> yeah. You yeah. had, had, Alan Cowan has had uh-huh. dozens of lucid dreams. Am I hearing that properly? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can't okay. remember why. I think it was because I saw The Matrix or it might have been Waking Life and both Wait. of them kind of referenced both it. Of, yeah, well. both of those yeah. will do it. <laughs> I was going to ask, I just wanted to make sure I heard that because my follow-up was going to be, what's the funnest, like craziest thing you did in your dream The once you were in control? I want to know what Alan left uh, to his own devices. High school Alan can do anything. What's he do? Do you remember? So first few lucid dreams that I had, I would say probably the first two thirds of them, I just tried to fly. Um, okay. And that worked sometimes. The problem is when you're in there, so I, I was able to fly pretty consistently, but like when you're in the air, it's hard to keep yourself asleep because it's scary. Then you wake up. So, because <laughs> it feels like you're falling. Yeah. Uh, so that was tough. But then I think the coolest ones that I had were kind of at the end of that whole fad that I was into, um, where I would just, instead of doing anything in the dream, I would just meditate in the dream. Um, so, and- hang on. <laughs> hang on. so your go-to move, you found yourself, you have captured the fire from Mount Olympus. That is the ability to control your entire reality. <laughs> and you opt to do nothing. You opt to meditate, to seek peace. <laughs> so here's the thing about if you're lucid dreaming it. and you do something kind of crazy, you wake up pretty fast because something happens and then, you know, it's hard to keep yourself not too kind of aroused, like, you know, the two like wake, woken up to like wake, actually wake up. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you meditate in the dream, you can actually keep yourself in that state for a longer period of time. And it results in like a very disembodied feeling. Uh, And so so you can be kind of teleporting, traveling in some kind of way, Mm -hmm. not like did you so keep a journal? Did, did you keep a journal back then? I never actually. Well, I did try once, but I never. I never really stuck to it. Okay, because I was going to say, if that journal exists, I will. I will bid on it at auction. <laughs> <laughs> if it exists, I don't know where it is. 
Uh, well, this is this is a podcast in iTunes. That means it's on the internet, which means we could ask the people of the world to look for Alan's Dream Journal. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> okay. You know what? People of the world, uh, people of the world, I rescind my ask. Please do not look for Alan. <laughs> uh, but yeah. you're, I mean, you and you're going to have to stop me from pitching you a whole new podcast where we just go into <laughs> all of dozens of lucid dreams. That is fascinating. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you for that. Well, thank you both of you for sharing those personal experiences. I love that. And I appreciate that very much. Um, let's, let's talk, Alan, you know, you mentioned the other day, uh, as we're talking about lucid dreaming and different types of dreams and, 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 and different things that can happen when we're dreaming, you said something the other day that I'd never heard before that I remembered and I wrote down, which was this idea. And I can't remember if it was a theory or if it's something we've proven or that I feel like we've touched on it. When we're in REM sleep and we see someone's eyes moving around and darting back and forth, there was this thought that that is us, our brain, looking around inside in our mm -hmm. dream world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really was interesting to me. And because mm -hmm. uh, I always love, you know, as we talk about what's inside our minds, it's, it's this, when we're asleep, it's this surreal, intangible thing that's super real, but we can't quite touch it and grasp it and when that when that kind of bridges into the physical realm it's very mm. exciting to me it's also a little terrifying um mm. but you know all the work you've done one uh, alan what did i remember that incorrectly is that a theory or is that something we kind of know elaborate on that a little bit for me because i was so into that idea what, what do we know about so, that i i read a study and i don't know okay. how much i trust it but i read a study that yeah. they had people who could lucid dream Mm -hmm. um, that they uh, they followed their eye movements, um, and they the people were instructed, I think, in a, in a double blind way or or single blind. I guess it couldn't be double blind, but basically, like you have to move your eyes either left and right or up and down when you're in your dream or something like that mm -hmm. to that effect. And they verified that during sleep, which you know they can measure when somebody's asleep based on their EEG signal, that the people's eyes were actually moving. In that way, mm. uh, Yuki might know about yeah, that. Actually, yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Just to, you know, to, to add some you know, details. So uh, that study was basically about you know smooth eye movement. So smooth. It's you know if when you have some you know, finger in front of you and uh, you know continuously moving, you can continuously track the you know position of you know the finger. But uh, it's hard in when you you know, close your eyes and imagine something moving smoothly. So, you know, eye movements tend to get, you know, jag jaggy, you know. So, but uh, in lucid dreaming, you know, they just imagine finger in front of them and smoothly moving, and they can make a very smooth eye movement. So, that, that shows, that indicates that lucid dreaming is not, is not like imagery. So it's more like our perception or, you know, uh, our, our day, daily, you know, wake experience. So that's, that's interesting. And uh, as for rapid eye movement, rapid eye movement is not smooth, right? It's uh, jumping, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, but uh, the, the theory is, you know, uh, saying that, uh, you know, it's tracking something, you know, in, in the scene. And actually, we, we are very interested in that. You know, theory, yeah. and uh, we try to prove or disprove that by you know making a picture while subjects having REM rapid eye movement. So if you know, be, you know just before uh, right word eye movement, 
you know, if there's something salient in, in the image to the right, mm -hmm. maybe that's that's kind of you know evidence that you know the yeah. rapid eye movement is for following. But another theory is that it's just random. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Has um as we talk about all these different facets of of the the sleep experience uh, for lack of a better term here has has the work either of you have engaged in and done offered uh like a new perspective or insights on phenomena such as sleep walking or or, or sleep talking or or sleep paralysis like ha has anything uh, uh changed how you perceive those or what you think about those types of things have you have you dug into any of that uh, uh i know that's not necessarily what we're focusing on or what studies i've read about ha have focused on but i just you, you know it's right next door i imagine you have thoughts on it or, or you've read something mm -hmm. interesting about it so i just wanted to, to kind of talk about all the sleep stuff and get it all in there uh, any interesting mm -hmm. ideas or thoughts uh influenced by your work sleepwalking sleep talking stuff like that yeah actually sleepwalking uh and uh, Actually, yes, this, you know, so some people, you know, having sleep disorder, you know, walks around, move around. And uh, depending on whether in, it's in REM period or a non-REM period, it's called, you know, differently. Right? So, and, uh, you know, during REM, uh, <coughs> uh, if we, some movement occurs, it's called, you know, REM, REMs, REM sleep behavior disorder or something like that. So, and, uh, there are only a few studies, but uh, they report that you know uh, uh, the person who shows some you know sleepwalking kind of behavior you know reports uh, dream experience consistent with that behavior, and actually that's been the 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 almost only you know, evidence that, you know, dreaming is associated with some, you know, brain activity during sleep, right? So actually, dream reports are basically some recall of some memory, right? Mm -hmm. So, and uh, there's no uh, certain way to make sure that dreaming actually occurs during sleep. Some philosophers said that uh, dreaming is just invented, after awakening, right? So by the subject, right? So yeah. logically, it's it, it's hard, it's been hard to refute that possibility. Right? But uh, from our study, it became more you know, certain that you know, dreaming uh, 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 dreaming occurs during sleep because you know brain activity during sleep can predict you know dream mm -hmm. reports, right? So it's uh, maybe it's obvious for most people, but. Uh, there's no solid proof for that. Yeah. 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 Um, Alan, did you want to add anything? Because we're coming in to the home stretch. No, you're good. I see you shaking your head. Okay, very good. Very good. I can never tell uh, if you're <laughs> nodding in agreement or if you've got something. <laughs> and I never want to steamroll. I, I think it's interesting. <laughs> it is. You are, I agree. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, the home stretch, which if anyone listens to the show, you know what I love to do. I always love to look ahead. Uh, and, and talk about the future and 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 kind of talk about what we uh, look forward to and what we're excited about. Um, and, you know, Yuki, it, when I, with, with a simpler tech like Wi-Fi, I get it. Wi-Fi is going to get faster. Uh, electric cars are going to get more efficient. I understand that. But in, in your field and in 
what I, I was trying to figure out what the next steps are going to be. Obviously, we'd like for the images that we're able to uh, get to be less fuzzy, to be clearer. But but what are some of the goals looking looking down the line? Uh, is it to reach a point where uh, we can pull full sentences like text? We can mm-hmm. understand text. Is it is it not photo but video from people's brainwave? What what are the steps? What are the mile markers as we look ahead? What's the next big thing that mm-hmm. you're hoping to achieve? And then at, and what's the thing after that that you hope that you've set up the next generation to get to? I because. It's such an abstract area. I couldn't figure out what the what the linear path is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, in my lab, there are several different you know projects are going on, such as you know decoding of sound in the brain, or uh, and uh, also yeah, emotion is one of the topics. And uh, and uh, actually, I'm collaborating with uh, neurosurgeons. Uh, uh, for building uh, brain machine interfaces, so we put the electrodes in patients' brain and uh, have them to control some something like mouse cursor or simple robots. Yeah. So yeah, that's actually you know being studied intensely, and uh, Elon Musk's you know new neural link is you know, like uh, working uh, for building some. Brain machine interfaces, and uh, the the goal is like uh, you know type text you know faster or something something like that right. So, and I think that that's initial step you know important initial step. But uh, I'm more interested in in <coughs> as I said, you know brain brain has you know the model of the world. So I'm interested in externalizing that. Yeah. So and. Uh, you know, in science fiction, you know, people, you know, like Matrix, uh, Inception, they they share the world, right, mm-hmm. in, in in mind. So I think that the direction, it, it, you know, the first step is just moving robot hands by your brain, but the, the direction will be sharing your internal world. Wow with other people. So yeah, toward that, uh, we are working on 3D reconstruction, you know, showing some 2D images, you know, we can now reconstruct 3D model of object. Although, you know, the accuracy is very poor, but uh, we are beginning to see. So, and uh, uh, we want to connect that to metaverse. So, and they share with other people. So that's kind of the direction yeah, we are interested in. For, forgive me if I'm misunderstanding uh, the specifics of, of what we're capable of and what it can lead to. But you, you mentioned how we you can show uh, a subject, uh, show somebody in, in, uh, uh, something, and then you can recreate it. And you're saying you, if they've seen it, you can then recreate it uh, 3D-wise. Are, are we... Is there, will there ever be, or are we working towards a time where I could, in theory, I don't need to be shown the object. We're doing that now so we can figure out how all the wiring works. But once we figure it out, is it one day, will it one day be possible to browse through memories the same way I browse through photos on a phone? And I don't mean in five years, Mm. just like, is that even in the realm of possibility that if we figured Mm. all this out, that I have my long-term memories from when I was a kid that I can, I can still hold on Mm. to stick with me forever for whatever reason. Mm. Figure it all out. Is it one day possible? Yeah, actually, that's a big, big challenge, and yeah. uh, someone uh, seriously pursuing 
But our approach is based on you know brain act activity. So mm-hmm. it may be fire, you know, brain firing or some metabolic changes picked up by some. Yeah. But the memory is generally thought to be encoded by some substance, so, you know, some synaptic connections and those things, which it's kind of structure or protein or some something. Right? It's not uh, some uh, you know potential yeah. or some, something so but uh, using some fancy my you know uh, some imaging technique you, you, you know at least you know for small regions you can visualize a change of you know snap synaptic you know yeah structures so and uh, big challenges whether we can you know Reco- uh, reconstruct some memory from those structures, and yeah. uh, but uh, I don't know. It's it's very challenging, but it's very interesting. But uh, another thing we should consider is that uh, whether memory is you know, now the dominant standard theory of you know memory in the brain is that you know they are basically synaptic connections. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, some people don't agree with that there are some something else you know something beyond synaptic connections so yeah yeah, so yeah we still don't know what's you know what can explain the memory content so what what to read out but uh yeah potentially it's it's interesting challenge it's just one of those things as we talk about it and and every time Mm -hmm. i read about you know, the, the neuroscience of these, the work that you're doing, it's for everything we figure out, it feels very much, very similar to our explanation, exploration of, of the cosmos for as far as we get. Mm. And as much as we learn, there is still mm. just so much that we can are yet to figure out and will one day figure out. And it's, uh, it's daunting, but inspiring and exciting and all those fun things all at once. It's really cool. Um, Alan, before I wrap things up and jump into the, uh, outro here, uh, just for you looking ahead how has some of the work that you've gotten to do some of the work you you you, you're watching from afar watching you can do how does that change and excite you for what's going on in in your world and over at hume and and what are you looking forward to bud yeah i mean there's this the methods stats side and i kind of got into that through neuroscience but now it all kind of comes back together when you think about the future of ai and brain augmentation and what Elon Musk is, is at least trying to do with Neuralink. I mean, all, a lot of that work is kind of inspired by Yuki's lab and other labs that followed what Yuki's lab had done kind of shortly thereafter in the years after there were a lot of, uh, there were several other labs that tried to, tried to do kind of similar things. Um, and it was very inspiring to a lot of people. And I think that's probably part of the inspiration for what Neuralink is trying to do is that you want to create an interface that allows you to keep up with the AI. (laughs) Like basically, if AI is going to be so intelligent someday that it kind of puts us all out of work, um, are we just going to allow it to kind of cater our lives and be kind of um, passive uh, recipients of what the AI does? Or are we trying to augment our intelligence so that we can be more actively participatory in that future economy that's created by AI. Uh, and I think it's a cool idea. I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit scary, obviously, to think about yeah. brain augmentation. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I think if you, if you, if you can imagine um, without trying to think through all of the implications, just like imagine you could 
when you're trying to pull something from memory, you're interacting with a machine that can identify what kinds of memories you're trying to pull up from memory and then show you visually the image that corresponds yeah. to those memories um, or not even memories, imagination and all of that. Um, that kind of interface could kind of accelerate every aspect of intelligence. Well, um, we kind of have a version of that now, don't we? Where it's like we have all these image, these generative images where it's like, and that's kind of what led to my earlier question of what's the next step? Is it a stream of text? Because it's like right now there's no shortage of places that you can go type in, you know, whatever stream of consciousness you can think of and boom, there's a, a photorealistic image generated. So it's like, well, okay, what if it's not a matter of decoding the image data? What if we just got to decode the words and then you have an AI that generates the image in accordance with what you're trying? And so you're kind of tapping into that, right? Where it's like, maybe we don't know how to get to the memories, but we've created an AI that knows what those memories should look like. And so mm -hmm. as we try to tap into them, it, it, it presents it to us. Uh, yeah. Very interesting, a little scary. But super cool. <laughs> um, uh, absolutely. I love it. Um, and then uh, I could do a whole episode of just one of the things I get super excited about. And you mentioned this, Yuki, of controlling robot hands or moving a mouse cursor. And just, you know, I think a lot of people, their gut reaction is to put the tinfoil hat on and say, oh, no, they're coming for our brains. Nothing is safe. But uh, and well, sure, we've got to have regulations. We've got to be careful mm -hmm. and look out for what happens. But also, I love... What can this mean for, for, for the people who are differently abled, people that uh, don't have the somebody stuck in a coma, all these different things, mm -hmm. the, the, the relief that we are on the cusp of, the, the, the solutions you could provide. It's just mm -hmm. it, it's too amazing to not explore. You've got we've mm -hmm. got to figure it out. And um, mm -hmm. so it's in that in that regard. Thank you for uh, all mm -hmm. the work that you're doing and the teams you've assembled and the stuff you figured out so far. And, and thank mm -hmm. you in advance for the stuff you're yet to figure out. Uh, you get mm -hmm. so cool. And, oh, okay. Okay. Thank and you. I appreciate it. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Not only do I appreciate the hard work, I appreciate the time you made. Mm -hmm. um, so so let's go ahead and wrap things up. It pains me to say it, uh, but I got to say goodbye. Uh, so grateful, Yuki. I said at the beginning, I'll say it again. Uh, it means a lot to me and the team here that you made some time and hung out with us today. I hope you had fun with us and, and enjoyed yourself. Uh, yeah, you I really enjoyed Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, for uh, Warms my heart. I'm happy to hear mm -hmm. that. Thank you. Uh, Alan, you two are, are also a very busy man. I don't want to understate that. So I, I pre it's not lost on me that you made time to hang out here today. So thanks, Alan. It's good to see you. <laughs> Always uh, a lot of fun. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, and speaking of my little list of people I appreciate, uh, next up, most important of all, the listeners uh, and watchers, however you're consuming it. The point is, uh, you're here too, and, and because of that, our show exists. So keep showing up, uh, sharing it with your friends, and giving us good ratings on iTunes and all that fun stuff, and and uh, we'll do our best to keep rounding up geniuses for, for stimulating little chats like these. And hey, if you have a question, any question, uh, we'd love to hear it. Send it our way. You can email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. That's T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S. L-A-B, the at symbol, H-U-M-E dot A-I. And one day, I swear, we're going to pull a bunch of them again and answer them on the show, and I'm going to make Alan do it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, that's going to do it for now, everybody. Farewell from all of us at the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everyone, and please stay safe out there. <laughs>